Thank you so much, Pastor Jason and uh, Adrian and the music team for leading us in songs. Good morning, everyone. Please keep your Bibles open in front of you. Keep it handy. Uh, and you can also refer to the sermon outline in the bulletin to follow this morning's message. Would you please pray along with me? Almighty God, you have spoken to us through your Son. Let your written word now be spoken and heard by us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that we may not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. May we be taught by you through your powerful word. Bring our every thought captive to obey Christ to the glory of your name. Amen. Now, as I begin, uh, let me just ask you, what was the most explosive event this week? I'm, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, and you'll agree with me, it's the detonation of this World War II bomb relic on Tuesday. Now, in case anyone has been living under a rock this week, let's recap just a little bit. The war relic in question was a 100 kg World War II area bomb uh, likely dropped during the Japanese invasion in early 1942, February 1942. And it was uncovered at this construction site for a new condominium. As a result of this, more than 4,000 residents, including some of my relatives, and businesses were evacuated before the Singapore Armed Forces Explosive Ordnance Disposal Team could detonate the bomb on site. Now, let me just see a show of hands. Anyone, anyone here was affected? You have to move. Nobody, okay. So no, no one comes to Bishan. Okay, well, I was impacted because um, it's actually along my son's bus route to school. Right? So I had to send him back from school right? because there was a diversion of the bus. My wife was on the way to Bible study and she found out that, oh, now coming back, she has to take another route. Now, some of us may be wondering, like I did, now, the bomb has been lying there for more than 80 years, right? You can calculate 80 years since 1942. Does it really pose a danger? Do we have to make such a big fuss and go through all the hassle? Why not just leave it? I think the only people who will object will be the future residents of this condominium. Right? They'd rather get rid of it before they move in. Well, our subject for today is another highly explosive event, uh, I'm referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And some of us might wonder, since this took place so long ago, why make such a big fuss over it now? Why does it, what does it have to do with your life and my life today? And even some of us who follow Jesus might ask, why does Jesus have to rise from the dead? Wasn't it sufficient that he was crucified and he died for our sins? Isn't his death enough? Well, to answer these questions, we'll be looking at two key passages for today. Uh, firstly, it's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9, and uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. And we've read both passages. And we'll try to answer these three questions. First, how can we be sure that Jesus rose from the dead? Second, why must Jesus rise from the dead? And third, so what if Jesus rose from the dead? Well, last week, 
as part of our Two Ways to Live series, we have seen why Jesus must die, why God sent Jesus to die for us. And to sum it all up, it's because God loves the world and the people He created. And so He didn't leave us to suffer the consequences of our rebellion against Him. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world and Jesus always lived under God's rule. He didn't, he didn't deserve to die at all. And yet he took your punishment and mine by dying in our place. And so the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. I think that was our memory verse for last week, right? So shall we read this together? For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. So hopefully we have got that locked down in our mind. But you see, that is not the end. The Lord Jesus didn't just suffer and die for our sins. He was also raised from the dead on the third day. And so box five would tell us that Jesus is the risen ruler and saviour. And the memory verse for this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, in a little while, we will read it together in closing. But first, let's answer these three questions that we've raised. First, how can we be sure that Jesus rose from the dead? What are the evidences for this? And can it really be proved? See, friends, in one sense, we can never prove the resurrection. Because the resurrection of Christ is a unique historical event unique in the sense that it cannot be humanly replicated. We cannot do it again in a lab and prove it. Historical, because it took place in a certain point in time, right? it's past, and so we cannot be there to witness it for ourselves. And yet, we can be quite confident that it is a true, actual event, and it's mainly because of the eyewitness accounts. To commemorate the 100th birthday of our founding Prime Minister, uh, two documentaries were recently produced by Channel News Asia. Right, so I don't know if you watched this. I watched it two weeks ago. Uh, first is Lee Kuan Yew in his own words. And I remember Lee Kuan Yew. Right, anyone watched it? Okay, don't be shy. I, I know most of us did. Okay, so if you watched it, they actually contain speeches by the man himself, as well as interviews uh, made by people who knew him. And so I think with this documentation, a few hundred years down the road, no one will ever doubt that he really existed and that he had an impact in Singapore's success because there are archives like this by our library and national archives. Well, the Apostle Paul lists out eyewitnesses to the risen Lord Jesus as well. And this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me read beginning from verse 4. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So who are these witnesses? 
Cephas, we know him as Simon Peter. He was the first witness at the empty tomb. He saw the empty tomb, apart from the women, right? And next were the 12 closest disciples of Jesus, minus the traitor Judas, and they were hiding out of fear in a locked upper room. But the reason Lord Jesus passed through the locked door. Later, he will appear to more than 500 disciples at one go. And this, I think, rules out that there was a group hallucination by the 12 because of their intense grief. If 500 people saw it, it cannot be a hallucination, right? The James in verse 7 refers to the Lord's half-brother. He didn't believe at first, but later he would become one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church. All the apostles here may refer to a wider group of disciples, which includes the 12 who were sent out by the Lord on mission. Finally, the reason Lord Jesus also appeared to Paul who was the persecutor of the church on the road to Damascus. Every single person listed here, their lives changed as a result of encountering the risen Lord Jesus. Now, I'm sure not everyone here was alive and present on the 9th of August 1965 when Singapore became an independent nation. Right? So I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because that will betray your age. But there are no doubts, I think, right? Anyone doubts that Singapore really separated from Malaysia on that day, that it was a true, actual event? No doubts, right? Because we all know someone who witnessed it. And there are news reports of the events that day from both sides. And our lives right now have been changed as a result of this event. Now, we have written accounts of the resurrection of the Lord in all four Gospels, and they are derived from these eyewitness accounts, these recollections by the eyewitnesses. And Paul says that some of these eyewitnesses have died by the time his letter to the Corinthians was written, which is around AD 55. And that's barely 20 years from the resurrection. But most of them were still alive and they could challenge or correct any falsehood in Paul's account or in the Gospels, which were all written before AD 70, except John's Gospel around AD 85. Moreover, the other evidence is that these witnesses, the disciples of Christ, they were completely transformed by their encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. Before, they were hiding in fear of the, of the authorities, but now they were openly declaring the resurrection of the Lord. Many of them will go on to be flogged, imprisoned, and even killed for the testimony they will bear for the Lord that He is risen. Now, who would dare to die for a lie that they themselves invented? And the hundreds of witnesses never once broke rank to deny the resurrection in order to save their own lives. No body of the Lord was ever produced by the authorities or by the disciples themselves because the Lord was well and truly risen. So to sum up, how can we be sure that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, we have the unanimous testimony and the drastic transformation of the many eyewitnesses. This presents a strong case for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
And if you are exploring further evidences for the Lord's resurrection, further arguments, or you like to defend your own faith, then here are two good books. They are slightly older, but I think they are still quite good books for your personal reading. The first is Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. And the second, The Case for Easter by Lee Strober. Both were written by men who started off as skeptics, but later came to terms with the factuality of Christ's resurrection. Now, next, we explore the second question. Some of us may ask, wasn't it enough that Jesus died on the cross as our substitute to save us from our sins? Isn't that enough? Why must Jesus also rise from the dead? Why is the resurrection also necessary? Well, you see, in the Lord's passion predictions, whenever he talks about his death, he always talks about his resurrection. He always mentions his death and resurrection together. And it seems as if both are two sides of the same redemption coin. So let me give you five reasons. There are many more. Just five reasons uh, for why the resurrection is necessary. The first reason for the resurrection is to verify or to fulfill what the Old Testament scriptures say about Christ. And this is very important because it affects whether God is faithful to keep his promise. If God says so in the Old Testament, then it must come to pass. In his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter would cite the Davidic psalm, Psalm 16. And he argues that the psalmist was ultimately prophesying about the Messiah's death and resurrection. That's what Paul also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 4, that Christ not only died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, but also was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is all in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. Don't know if many of you watched this or have read the novels. In J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, both the novel and the, and the movies, Gandalf the Grey died while fighting the demonic monster Balrog. And he comes back to life 19 days later as the upgrade version, Gandalf the White, in order to complete the mission. In C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan the Lion died on the stone table as a sacrifice in place of the traitor Edmund. But he came back to life as the table split in two, as the, just as the temple curtain was torn apart to symbolize our access to God. And then he went on to lead the Narnians to defeat the White Witch. Of course, both Tolkien and Lewis, they were alluding to the resurrection of Christ, and Gandalf and Aslan were simply acting as the Christ figure. C.S. Lewis would himself explain Aslan's resurrection in this way. When a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in the traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. See, he understood what Peter said on the first Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, God raised him, Jesus, up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, brothers and sisters and friends, the Lord Jesus was sinless and therefore death 
couldn't hold him down. So the second reason for the resurrection, the resurrection was necessary to vindicate Christ's sinlessness. See, the wages of sin is death, but Jesus never sinned, and so he didn't deserve to die. His death was on behalf of us sinners. Once every six weeks, roughly six weeks, my son and I would get our hair cut, and we like to go to neighborhood hair saloons like uh, K-Cuts or QB House, so it's a template haircut. Now, it was only last month that I realized that they've introduced an app to buy these tickets. So I had to, in the past, get the exact change, go to the ticket machine, put in the cash, and then out comes the ticket. Right? So now I know that. Just buy online. Well, I know that my payment of the cash is validated or confirmed when the queue number is returned. In the same way, Christ's resurrection is a validation of his sacrifice, his payments for our debts. It proves that it was effective to appease God's anger against us and to secure full forgiveness of our sins. That is reason number three. The Lord was returned from the tomb to show his payment to secure our salvation was accepted by the Father. Paul would say in Romans chapter 4, verses 24 to 25, the righteousness of God will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Christ was raised for our justification. In other words, Christ's resurrection proves that God had accepted Jesus' death as payment in full for our sins. And so he raised him from the dead. Fourth, Christ's resurrection also vivifies or enlivens or gives new life to his subjects. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Paul also says this in Romans 6 verse 4, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So because of Christ's resurrection, you and I now can have this new way of life. We have an eternal and secure heavenly inheritance that cannot be lost or diminished in any way. Fifth, the last reason, Christ's resurrection qualifies him as our eternal high priest. Okay, right now I've, I run short of these already, so I'm just coming out of a queue now. Right? So Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 tells us that Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
I don't know how many barbers you have had in your life, but uh, over the past 40 over years of my life, I have to change barbers a couple of times because my regular ones retire. Right? So same thing with our doctors, hawkers, and other service providers. But since Jesus is our eternal high priest who lives forever, we don't need to find any replacement for him. His ministry is constant and unflagging. So to sum up, why must Jesus rise from the dead? The resurrection of Christ verifies Old Testament scriptures and proves God's faithfulness. It vindicates Christ's sinlessness, and God, God accepts it, and he raises him from the dead. It validates Christ's sacrifice as full payment for your sin and mine. It vivifies Christ's subjects so that we can have new life in Christ and it qualifies Christ as God's eternal high priest. The Lord Jesus now rules as God's king in heaven because he died and he rose again. And so Paul says in Philippians 2, because Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus now rules as King because of his death and resurrection. Finally, we ask, what now? Since Christ died and rose from the dead, what are the implications for you and I? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, let's read this uh, next slide, and let's read the verses together. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now first notice the words in green. The words in green tell us what Paul himself did with the Gospel. Paul received the Gospel direct from the risen Lord Jesus who appeared to him on the Damascus Road, he preached and delivered it to the Gentiles like the Lord commanded him, people like the Corinthians. And now the words in blue are what we are to do with the gospel. We are to receive it. We are to stand in it, hold fast to it, and believe it. That is how we are being saved. Now the verb received translates is translated from the word in Greek paralambano and it's a word that is used to refer to traditions that are passed down from one generation to the next so in other words tradition isn't a dirty word eh, brothers sisters an example of this many first generation traditional hawkers right they are retiring due to age and rising operating costs right and so it's something that we all lament we are losing many traditional local dishes. And so what happened is that National Environment Agency, 
which manages our hawker centres, they introduced in 2020 the Hawkers Succession Scheme in order to ensure, let me quote from, from this article, this scheme is to help veteran hawkers who are intending to retire but are unable to find suitable successors among their family members or relatives to pass down their skills, recipes and hawker stores to aspiring hawkers. See, good food is a valuable tradition that must be passed down, right? Otherwise, you and I will not have those good stores to go to anymore. Now, we have seen how both the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential. Both are essential to our salvation. And so to preach the gospel is to simply pass down this message about the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. To tell people that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And Paul tells us that this is of first importance. The liberal theology from the late 19th century until today, they deny the, the authority of Scripture, which is God's handed-down tradition by these eyewitnesses who saw Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And liberal theology likely originated as an attempt to move with the times. And in those days, there was an emphasis on rationalism and a denial of supernaturalism things like Jesus' miracles and his resurrection. It aimed to be on the right side of history, like many who advocate revisionist sexual ethics today, by elevating the values and belief system of this world over God's revelation in Scripture. But contrary to what these champions of theological liberalism expected, becoming more like the world did not win the world for Christ. Instead, it led to declining church memberships. It was rather faithful, Bible-believing churches that flourished and persevered against all human expectations. So believing and standing firm in the gospel of a crucified and risen Saviour may sound foolish to the world and invite ridicule on you and I. But we must hold fast to the word that was preached to us, that we have received, so that we do not believe in vain. Next, Peter also says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, just read these verses again together. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Peter having assured us of this living hope of an eternal heavenly inheritance, he tells us that there will be present suffering. But this resurrection hope can also give us joy Right? So if you are wondering where to find joy, as the basic uh, announcement is, there is joy because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. See, the Christian life isn't without trials, isn't without sufferings, but the Lord's resurrection assures us that He is coming again to put an end to all that is wrong. So in the words of the so-called memorial acclamation, 
which a lot of churches say traditionally uh, during Easter, says Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. See, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then he cannot come back again. And Peter tells us in Acts chapter 10, verse 42, that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So the Lord Jesus will come back. He will come again as the judge of all, to punish the unrepentant and to save the faithful. Again, in view of the coming judgment, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 tells us, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The reason Lord Jesus will come again to save the faithful at the final judgment. So like a young child who is confident as you drop them off at children's church today or drop them off in school, they are confident that their parents will come back and fetch them home at the end of the day. So you and I can go through our days on earth, even though there be trials and suffering, with joy and assurance, even though there will be grief from the various trials and we will be put through fire for the testing of our faith. Because we know that any injustices that we suffer, the Lord will vindicate. Just as his father vindicated him after he bore our sins on the cross. So brothers, sisters and friends, the resurrection of Christ has this major implication. For we wouldn't have this hope without his resurrection. Let's picture ourselves a few, day, a few years down the road. I think that not many of us will remember the detonation of the bomb relic at Upper Bukit Timah Road last Tuesday, right? I think there's a slide for this. Okay, except perhaps those of us who were involved in the bomb, bomb disposal and the residents of the new condominium who can now live with full assurance that there is no bomb under them. The only lasting damages that can be repaired easily were some cracked ceilings, windows, and light bulbs. So, why is the explosive event of Christ's resurrection still such a big deal today? See, friends, the resurrection of the Lord was an explosion that has blown a large and permanent hole in human history. It's something that cannot be denied or covered up. See, the band of frightened disciples were transformed into fearless witnesses for the Lord. The church was born out of persecution to be a mission force to be reckoned with. Lives and societies have been impacted by the very inconvenient truth of the empty tomb. But some days, my life doesn't seem to be so impacted by Christ's resurrection. Right? because I find that I have no joy in my life, and you might find that too. And so we might sometimes also go back to our old ways of sin. We don't experience newness of life. We are not excited to share this good news of the risen Lord Jesus with others. But brothers, sisters, friends, the resurrection of the Lord is true. And if the resurrection is true, then the implication is very clear. 
the risen Lord Jesus is our rightful ruler and saviour. And so in closing, let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 together as our memory verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So allow me to read from the Two Ways to Leave presentation in closing to sum this up. As God's ruler, Jesus has been appointed as God's judge of the world. When Jesus returns and the judgment day comes, Jesus will be the one calling us to account for our rebellion against God. But Jesus is not only God's appointed king and judge, he is also the saviour from judgment. Because of his death in our place, he now offers to forgive all our sins. They've already been paid for. We can now make a fresh start with God, no longer as rebels, but as loyal friends, giving all thanks and honour to him. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose for our justification. Please help each one of my brothers and sisters and friends here submit to him as our ruler, that we might have forgiveness of sins and live a new life in Christ. And so may we have confidence in this life, even as we await his return as our Saviour from your coming judgment. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.